EU Confidential will begin in just a moment after a message from this week's sponsor. Our army skills started our first aid business, but we found we are lacking the skills to grow it. Grow with Google's program in Denmark gave us a digital mindset. In less than a year, we went from teaching 360 people first aid to 3,200. Now we employ 34 more army staff. We are Mark and Anders of first aid in Denmark. Two of the 725,000 Europeans so far who found a job or grown their business with Google's help. By 2020, we will support one million more. Grow with Google. To find out more, search new skills, new opportunities. Hello and welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, news editor at Political Europe, and I'll be hosting this week as Ryan is away getting married. But there'll still be plenty of Ryan in the podcast as we play out an interview he recorded last week with Emily O'Reilly, the European Ombudsman in Strasbourg. It's a really interesting interview with the woman who's basically the EU's watchdog, the person charged with checking everyone's following the rules. She talks about transparency and Donald Trump, about her investigation into the Commission's controversial promotion of Martin Selmayr, Jean-Claude Juncker's right-hand man, and she talks about how her previous life as a journalist helps her in her current job. Our regular panellists, Lena and Alva, are also at Ryan's wedding, so we've improvised with a couple of in-house substitutes, competition and trade editor Christian Oliver and tech editor and French politics expert Nick Vinegar. We'll be talking with them about the EU's competition chief taking on Germany's mighty car makers, and we'll also talk about Emmanuel Macron telling an unemployed gardener to cross the street to get a job. But we'll start with Ryan's interview with Emily O'Reilly. I'm sitting here in the Strasbourg office of Emily O'Reilly, who's the European Union Ombudsman. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Ryan. Now, you've got a very uh, interesting job here in the European Union, where essentially your job is to look at complaints about maladministration and other concerns with the way the institutions of the union operate. I was wondering if you could lay out a little bit about what are the things you can and can't do in this role and what are the strategic challenges that you see the union as facing in this regard? Well, I suppose the Ombudsman is essentially a soft power. Uh, I don't make binding recommendations. I'm often asked, wouldn't you love to have binding recommendations that you just sort of bang your fist on the desk and insist that the institutions do what you want? And I have to let them down and say no, because if I did have binding recommendations, then essentially I'd be a court, or if I wasn't, I'd end up in court, because a lot of my decisions would be challenged. So it's actually the interesting part of the job, how you turn a job in which the recommendations that you make, nobody has to pay a blind bit of attention to, into something that, that is actually powerful and that does work. So about between 80 and 90 percent of the recommendations are accepted and that shows two things. It shows that hopefully my office is working well. It also shows that the general administration is working well. They accept that this watchdog role is is legitimate and so on. So how do you make it work? I often compare it to, and I think most of my colleagues are bored of me saying this now, like being the conductor of an orchestra and deciding which instrument you're going to use. Are we going to go hard on the drums? Are we going to play a little piccolo? Or are we going to have silence? And I suppose that's the craft. So 
For example, if we have a case, are we going to do, are we going to tweet about it? Are we going to do a press release about it? Are we going to go to Parliament with it? Um, how stroppy are you going to get in relation to what you say? And all the time you're sort of looking at the hinterland, you're looking at the, okay, politics small p, you're looking at the gravity of the case that you're doing, you're seeing what the mood music is like at any one time, and you're seeing just how to shape the work that you're doing. But I think, you know, the, I suppose the most important thing, well, one of the most important things, you seem to be independent, yeah. but also that you do what it says on the tin. I think institutions go bad or go wrong or go rogue when they don't do what they're supposed to be. So we were just talking there before we started this about the financial regulation, the financial regulator in Ireland, that office, who possibly did not do what they were supposed to do, what it said on the tin. And institutions go bad when, when they don't do that. So I think my rule of thumb is that we simply do what we're supposed to do, which is to kind of look out for maladministration, be the watchdog of, of the institutions and... Um, do the work as fairly as we can. And I think if the institutions see that you're treating them fairly, that you don't automatically jump and take the violin out and be on the side of the complainant, then they are generally more willing to listen to you. Sounds a little bit like journalism. And you were, once upon a time, a journalist. I'm wondering now, are some of those skills coming in handy, those sort of investigative techniques and that need to be able to listen to all sides in order to achieve some useful outcome? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, people would say to me, uh, you know, have you changed role? Are you now the gamekeeper sort of thing? And actually, I'm in exactly the same space. I'm there between the people and the administration mediating one to the other, I guess. And obviously communication is a thing. Obviously being curious and nosy is another thing. I think curiosity is a great attribute for, for an ombudsman. I think you have to see not just the raw legal issue around a complaint, you have to see it in the wider context. I think particularly here because obviously things are more complex and so on. So certainly being a journalist, yes, I have to be a little more guarded in, in what I say a little better behaved in some ways but I think the essential skills are so and they're the interest in any way that brought me into journalism because as a child I loved politics um, would follow the US presidential elections uh, I remember writing about things when I was when I was a very young child and so that got me into journalism where obviously as a political correspondent which I was for quite a while you're dealing with politics with the administration and so on and then you go to become an ombudsman and of course there are other things you have to learn on the job there but I think the essential sensibility is the same. And how important is the theme of transparency in what you're doing? You know, I would be someone who would say transparency is generically a good thing, but sometimes it's insufficient to achieve good administrative outcomes. So I was just wondering what your perspective is on that sort of mantra that people sort of revert to more and more when they worry about the use and the abuse of power. I think you're right, and I've been thinking a lot about this recently myself because I've said in a few talks that I've given about how Trump was arguably the most transparent presidential election candidate ever. I mean, we knew all his bad bits. They weren't hidden. They were out there from his sexism, his racism. All of that was there. And what happened? He became president of the United States. So transparency is only one part of it. It's what you do with the outcome of the transparency that's important. I remember when the whistleblowers famously, Snowden and... Uh, Julian Assange. Yes, spending time in the embassy in, in London. I remember one of them saying that when they released an incredible amount of information about some of the nastier things that the US military had done in Afghanistan or that, and, you know, really horrendously shocking videos, and I think they, they stood back and waited for 
for things to change and things didn't. Well, I assume they have in some ways, but not in a way that was incredibly visible. So that, again, goes like transparency is just one part of the whole picture. So if I make something transparent here by recommending the release of certain records and the released, fine, it might be maybe in the area of pesticides, maybe in the area of the environment, something you know that is of significant public interest. If the political bit or the administrative bit doesn't then pick up on that, then transparency obviously is showing its limitations. But in order to get the action, you have to have the transparency. And would you say there are particular institutions or, I guess, sectors where there are more problems than others? Do you see patterns recurring in the sort of investigations and complaints that you look into? Well, I remember when we were doing our investigation into the transparency of the council, so the, so the member states. The, the black box, as yeah, we refer exactly. to it at Politico. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. We found that, uh, and this has actually been studied by academics, so it isn't just sort of hearsay from the limited amount of time we spent there, that the more, I mean, this is the statement of the blindingly obvious as well, the more politically sensitive a dossier was, the more it was going to be closed down and put into that black box. Uh, so, for example, if you, you get something got to do with, you know, sensitive international relations, maybe with migration, with something like that, very hard, you know, a limited amount recorded. The environment, you know, nice touchy-feely stuff, not a problem, lots of stuff out there. So it more depends on the issue than on the sector. But then it very much depends on the culture of the institution as well and, and who's leading it. So, you know, you might go into maybe a DG in the commission and they've been led by somebody who comes from a background in which data production is a high value rather than transparency. And then it's like going back into the dark ages. It's hard to generalise. Um, you can't say such and such an agency is more transparent than any others, but within the council, it was very much the political sensitivity of the dossier, which I suppose is obvious in a way. You might be able to predict my next set of questions. It's around the appointment of Martin Selmayr as Secretary General of the European Commission. So for anyone listening who doesn't know who he is or, or what that role is, he was a very powerful chief of staff to Jean-Claude Juncker. He's a longtime European Union official and intimately involved in the biggest political party that we have here, the European People's Party. And he managed to achieve a double promotion in the space of minutes to get this most powerful job at the European Commission. And you received some complaints about that. And I think in the end, you examined about 11,000 pages of documents and had some potentially very tense interviews about that process. And you really found that both the letter and the spirit of the EU's rules in that appointment were broken. So can you walk us through a little bit what you did with that investigation and you know, how you're feeling about it now that you've gone through that big political whirlwind? Okay, so we got two complaints from two different delegations of MEPs and we opened an inquiry into it. So the most powerful power, I suppose I have in a way, is the powers of inspection, which are actually greater than that of the Parliament because I can, you know, request to see any document that I need to see that I, if I think is going to help me in my, um, in my investigation, no matter how, how sensitive. And is that all very polite? We, you do it via a nice email request or do you... You turn up in uniforms at a door. In this case, my colleagues marched for several days and weeks into the commission offices, and it was a bit strange, really, because they... This was essentially a staff case. Okay, it was a very high-profile staff case, but it wasn't as if we were going into NATO and looking into files there. And we weren't able, I think, to take a lot of files out. And I say we, obviously, I wasn't in there myself, it was my colleagues. There was a guard posted there, a poor man having to sit there, I think it was a man, um, for days on end watching. The colleagues had to put their phones 
into boxes or something. I think somebody said lead lined. I don't know, something just in case somebody was trying to get information from their phones about this, which is all overkill. But anyway, we went along with it. We wanted to get on with the inquiry. So then the colleagues saw they reckoned about 11,000. Now, that probably you know, gives a misleading impression because a lot of them would have been drafts and redrafts. of uh, Most of the documents came post the actual appointment because that was when the European Parliament was investigating. Lots of questions were being put in. Where the cover-up may be worse than the non-crime. Yeah. <laughs> we, we saw the records. And what I said at the very beginning, because I realise it's a politically sensitive case, I said, look, we're just going to do a very factual show-and-tell investigation. No editorialising beyond you know, the recommendations at the end. Let's just set out very clearly what happened. And so the chronology itself really tells the tale in terms of an almost domino-like effect in terms of the way that Mr. Selmayr was appointed. And remember, the colleagues also have to write freehand all of this stuff. So I mean, it was, it was a hats off to them. It was a fantastic piece of work that they did just to get that all together. And then we we spat it down. We you know formed conclusions. We discussed it obviously amongst ourselves. And then it's down to me to see you know what recommendation I want to make and all of that. And that's what we did. And then we sent it off to the commission. Obviously published it, and we get their response in December. So what pleased me about it was that I think anybody reading it would see that I was certainly factual, that we didn't try and, you know, not take sides, except but we didn't try and uh, sort of editorialise in relation to it, and that the facts themselves tell the story. So we'll, we'll wait and see what the Commission has to respond, will respond. Now, I had an interview with Gunther Oettinger, who's the HR Commissioner, who's one of the three people who knew in advance that this was going to be happening. And he actually said in one of his statements after you released your findings that there are some more documents and he'll release them in due course. Did that come as a surprise when you read that sort of information? Well, I don't know whether that was a an interview rhetorical thing that, that he was saying, meaning to say, well, look, we'll come back with other arguments rather than him actually meaning that there were records as such. I, I don't know. I mean, yes, it's something we, we were talking about a few days ago, so we should have been enabled to see everything we needed to see. I'd be interested to see whether the documents... I thought he meant it more in the sense of um, we'll have further explaining to do rather than actually hard records. I might be wrong, I don't know. And do you think there are any broader lessons that need to be followed by the Commission or Selmayr himself now that, that this has come out? Because... He's obviously someone who does wield very clear influence and he sets a particular tone from the top and that seems to be a bit at odds with what you think is good administration. I think there are a number of issues there. Obviously, I've, I've met Martin Salmeyer once, you know, just at an informal thing, said hello to him, that was it. Uh, I, I don't know him. But anyway, clearly he's a very, as they say, uh, he's a very competent civil servant, clearly has had the trust of commissioners and certainly with the President Juncker. So this was not an investigation into Martin Selmeyer's competence for the job at all. But I think really if they had really wanted Martin Selmeyer to have the job or he really wanted it, another way could have been found that would not have seen as contested as this one I mean and the thing is maybe I'm naive but like you know Europe is is a kind of a mildly scary place at the moment and we think that the guys and indeed the gals in the institutions they're the good guys and maybe they are they feel they're being held to an impossible standard but actually we need that we really do need that and when you see 
I'll call it, you know, the manipulation of the rules and not even it being done in a, even a very um, clever way because it was immediately obvious that, you know, what had happened, this was intended. If the question were asked, was anybody other than Martin Selmar going to become Secretary General? The answer was probably no, but there are many ways they could have done it, which would not have brought the opprobrium on their heads that it is. And what this does, it just gives ammunition to the people who are only too willing to kick the EU. You know, people sometimes say to me, oh, well, you know, you're stirring up your scepticism because, you know, your reports, well, of course, I'm an ombudsman, I deal with complaints. I mean, of course, I'm going to be, at times, being critical of the institutions. But when you see gloating almost editorials in some of the press in Britain or indeed the rest of the world who take a certain view of Europe, you think, oh, well, you know, that, that is a pity. It really is a pity. And I will take responsibility for my work, and I consider that I have done this well, but I'm not going to be the moral authority for anybody else. You know, the Commission or any other institution, they have to do their bit. And it's not enough to be defensive about it or to defensive, combative, and three things at the one time. You know, could we be adults here? Could we just be grown-ups and, and say, OK, look, we got it wrong, and next time we're going to do it better? So we'll see, because they can't, on the one hand, talk about, as they do, as you know, endlessly, gaining the citizens' trust, and we're acting with integrity and all of that, and then, as the song goes, they, they go and they go and spoil it all by doing something stupid like, like that. And again, I mean, I say that's no reflection on, on, on Mr. Selmayr, but, uh, you know, come on. One other really complicated issue that is going to need maybe more than transparency, but definitely some transparency, is how all of these endless Brexit negotiations unfold or are finalised. How have you been finding the behaviour of the Brexit task force? And do you have any relative assessments about how that compares to the British government and how they've been performing? Because it does seem like a process we're going to be stuck with for at least several years yet. Yeah, well, at the very beginning of this, I, I, well, even after the Brexit referendum, I sort of strategized about how we could play a useful role in this. And obviously, transparency is an obvious one. So we wrote to the Commission and the Council in terms of you know making transparent the various negotiation documents and, and the mandate and all of that. And they, I think uh, President Juncker said there would be unprecedented transparency. And I suppose compared, well, nobody's ever left the EU before, but compared with, say, trade negotiations, there's, there's, there's been a lot of transparency in this, but of course, it's a, it's a political tool for the, um, for the, uh, for, for the, for the commission as well, for the institutions as well. Look they at know that. the British can't compete on no, that front. No, exactly. And of course, the British obviously are um, a complete other end of the spectrum. They don't want you know anybody to see their homework because they don't just get kicked in the head by Europeans. They get kicked in the head by their own people. And not even by the opposition, by their own party, and not even by their own party, but with sort of, you know, groupings within the party. And I think it is, even though I, I'm Irish and would have a certain view of the British, of course. I mean, I, I remember talking to a, a French businessman, a banker who had, had business with the British, and he said that so many of his clients were just astonished. They, they saw Britain as strong and stable, you know, maybe a bit odd around the edges, as every member state is in its own particular way. 
but strong and stable. And now everything they see is the antithesis of that. But I think as well, I mean, leaving aside the whole Brexit thing, you know, the, the whole issue of cabinet confidentiality, um, parliamentary accountability, all of those things that were sacred within Britain and within the UK political system are now being chipped away. And it's going to take a great effort of will to return that. And now what's next for you? Have you got a reappointment coming up or are you ready to, to go off into the countryside and never think about all of these difficult issues no. again? No, 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 no. The, yes, there's a, the, each European parliament appoints a, a new ombudsman, not necessarily a different ombudsman. So yes, there will be an election next year after the European elections, presumably every few months of everybody sorting themselves out and then they'll get around the election and I am going to put my name forward again. Very good. Well, we'll leave it at that. Emilia O'Reilly, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you very much indeed, Ryan. Pleasure. That was Ryan Heath talking to Emily O'Reilly, the European Ombudsman in Strasbourg last week. Coming next, the podcast panel. So now it's time for our podcast panel and I have drafted in a couple of in-house experts this week. Uh, Tech editor Nick Vinegar. Hi, Nick. Hi, good to be here. And alongside him is Christian Oliver, trade and competition editor. Hi, Christian. Hello. Thanks both for coming in. Um, I thought we'd just kind of do a little tour d'horizon of a couple of the big events in Brussels and European politics this week, Uh, starting with EU Competition Commissioner Margrethe Vestager, who's had a very busy week launching investigations into Germany's big car makers and to Amazon. Christian, let's start with the car makers. What does she suspect them of doing and why is this a big deal? This really is a case of the Commission taking on the Dieselgate scandal. The details of the case are a bit different. They're a bit like the trucks cartel that she's been looking at before. And it's essentially whether big car makers in Germany collaborated not to introduce technologies that would clean petrol and diesel fumes. From a technical point of view, that isn't exactly the defeat devices that we all got to know and love during the Dieselgate crisis. But politically, this is exactly what the Commission is doing. In 2015, when Dieselgate broke, the Commission was in disarray about what to do. And it was really only the real force that they had was DG Comp to come in and act. The idea of being able to take on the Germans to do something about the pollution that comes out of the the auto industry. Finally, the Commission has the big case that it's always been looking for. Okay, just for uh, people who are not so familiar with the Brussels bubble, uh, DG Comp is basically Vestire's department, right? Exactly, exactly. That's the, the competition authorities. And they have very unusual powers within Brussels. They're kind of judge, jury and executioner of uh, these big cases. And they have far more powers than the, say, the industrial DG and the the environment DG, the offices looking after those matters here in Brussels. So they're the ones that can actually terrify the German car industry. And why does she suspect them of doing this? Do we know what evidence she has? Do we know if, you know, what she's gathered so far that's... um given her the initiative or the idea that she should launch a full investigation here? Cartel investigations generally tend to come through a whistleblower, which is one of the companies involved, has decided that it's in their big interest to avoid a fine and to move first and to blow the whistle. In this case, a couple of the companies are claiming leniency. They're claiming it's them. 
because you don't know whether you're the first person in past the door to say, please let me off the fine, I'm the first. That will all become clearer as the case comes on. When we see the fines at the end of it, we'll find out who really did blow the whistle. Okay, and what are the car makers saying about it? They're remaining very quiet about this at the moment. They're trying to draw a bit of a distance between the Dieselgate scandal and what has happened here. But in the middle of a cartel investigation, it's very normal for the companies not to fight back too much. If you have some of the bigger cases that we've been watching, like the Google case, for example, you get lots of action. You get lots of companies trying to steer the debate as it goes on. Cartel cases tend to be a bit different because it tends to be a big pile of documents and emails has already gone in. Therefore, they're very, very careful about what they say. They try not to make this into a big piece of public theatre. They try and negotiate behind the scenes for some kind of clemency from the Commission. Okay, Nick, now, Vestire has also been looking into Amazon, started the ball rolling there. What's that case about? Simply put, it's about whether Amazon should be allowed to sell its own products on the platform while hosting effectively one of the biggest marketplaces in the online world. And it's a very interesting move because for a couple of years now, people have been looking around the world at Amazon and saying, this company has now become so large and so dominant in the online space that perhaps antitrust authorities should do something about it. And there was a lot of talk about a very influential article that was written by a scholar in the U.S. called Lena Khan, where she introduced a very novel idea about antitrust. And she said, it's not just about whether a lack of competition is penalizing consumers because prices are very high. Um, You can prosecute an antitrust case simply on the merits that it is impeding competition. And we're obviously at a very early stage. This is a preliminary investigation. On the other hand, it's the first time an antitrust authority and a major jurisdiction has pointed a finger at Amazon and said there may be a problem here. Okay, Mm. Christian, does that strike you as a... It does. I would add one other element that people are going to be very interested in this case, which is the use of data. And this has been something that's been floating in the air for a long time. Investiga herself has been sniffing around for a case that says, how do we approach this notion of data within the competition environment? treating it basically as another kind of corporate asset, the sort of thing you might ask companies to divest or sell off. You know, to what extent do we start treating data as a real quantifiable crunchy thing in these cases? And she suggested when she spoke yesterday that this was really at the heart of the case here, that what is it that Amazon has its own platform but you as a another merchant sell on that platform, but Amazon knows everything about how well your products are doing and therefore can match its sales to sort of compete with you on its platform. So it's going to be that use of data. And I'm not sure we've really had a case yet that's really treated data in this way. Nick, what are Amazon saying and what are tech companies generally? What's their view of the way the European Union and uh, competition authorities especially are kind of looking at their business? For now, the basic response from Amazon is, hold on, this is not a fully blown investigation. There's plenty of discussions before we get there. What we should say is that Amazon has had a sort of very pragmatic approach to European authorities in general and has avoided this sort of scrutiny for a long time, unlike the other big tech companies, Google and Facebook, which have been in the crosshairs. So Amazon, I think, is a bit new position for it to be in. 
Of course, if you take a big step back, you could say this is another case of Europe, the regulator against Silicon Valley, the innovator. And that's certainly how this might play to some of the advocates for Silicon Valley. But there's now the complexity that the U.S. president has also criticized Amazon and he's criticized Facebook and Google for different reasons. So these companies can no longer look back to Washington and say, hey, please, now we need your political and diplomatic support. That The playing field has changed and the momentum of rhetoric is against the big tech companies. So that's the new situation. Great. Let's mm-hmm. switch gears now. We'll take advantage of the fact that you're here, Nick, because you used to be our Paris correspondent. I thought it might be worth just taking a look at the fortunes of Emmanuel Macron, who's been in the news again uh, this week, particularly with his comments about an unemployed gardener. Uh, Nick, do you just want to recap uh, what happened here and maybe talk about the political fallout? I mean, it was another one of these Twitter moments where Emmanuel Macron was giving a tour of the Elysee grounds and a young man was talking about being unemployed. And Emmanuel Macron, in his way, rather directly said, well, I will walk across the street and find a job for you. That's how easy it is to find a job in France. And then predictably, it was a massive blowback against this, a kind of meme hashtag movement about crossing the street and simply finding a job and that everybody should simply cross the street and find a new job. And all this has blown up a little bit. If I can offer my analysis or or view of this, I think this is another of Macron's self-inflicted wounds. And I think we're starting to see a pattern with Macron putting himself in bad situations, largely of his own making. Obviously, there are certain intractable things about the economy and so on. But here he has gone and pricked this beast again. This is the latest in a long series of comments that seem insensitive, you know, rather callous with regard to France's 9% unemployed people. And that is a little bit damaging. Mm. Christian, how much has Macron kind of changed Brussels, do you think? And he's been in office a bit more than a year, especially for you, the beats that you concentrate on, trade, competition. You know, I think there's still kind of two views of Macron in various kind of European quarters, which is, is he just another French president pursuing pretty much standard French European foreign policy, economic policy? Or is he different? Has he made much impact on the areas that you cover? That's going to be the big question, really. I think the best way of answering that question is to look at trains, which are a really big thing to the French, and they cut across the trade and competition sphere in a big way. And I think they're going to prove what kind of liberal, what kind of protectionist Macron really is on a number of fronts. I mean, French trade policy is to a large extent on this and has been for a long time been steered by Alstom. And their view on the trading position of Europe in the world is there has to be some form of reciprocity between Asia and Europe, that if the Europeans struggle to get big public contracts for things like railways, signaling systems, infrastructure projects in Asia, then those big Asian companies should not be coming over to Europe and bidding in the same way. That whole idea of reciprocity has been put on hold a little bit at the moment because Europe is moving more towards a model of investment screening, how much we allow the Chinese to buy into our companies here. But it could all come back. Um, And there are a number of things on the competition front that will sort of gauge to what extent Europe is going to engage with the the plans of of um, of Macron. The big one is the merging of Alstom and Siemens into a big 
European rail champion, the rail bus, the air bus of the of the rail world. Um, there's a lot of problems with that in competition terms. And is this just going to be waved through? How will the French react if it's stopped in Brussels? What kind of reaction will we see? Will we lurch straight back to, now it's reciprocity, let's stop the Asians coming in here? They're also looking at this big move to take the debt off SNCF. Right, the French the National Railway yeah, Company. Try and perk up the national rail system again. That's another big question in Brussels. Is that allowed, just lifting that amount of debt straight off the books of SNCF? This is kind of a big trial moment. And watch the trains. Watch the trains as your indication for how does he really see the world and will Brussels leave him alone or will Brussels challenge him? Okay, so we'll see what comes down the track. Thanks, Nick, and thanks, Christian, for joining us for this section of EU Confidential. And that's all we've got time for in this week's podcast. Thanks also to Ryan for his interview with Emily O'Reilly and to producer Wei Dong Lin. Remember, you can rate, review and subscribe in all the usual places. And we'll be back next week with another EU Confidential. 